you know, some people say faith is a crutch, but you know what? Sometimes you do need something to lean on. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. I'm Abigail Thomas and you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. My guest today is Janelle Aldred. Janelle is a communications specialist and founder of GA Consultancy. She's worked as a journalist and TV presenter, including for the BBC and ITN. And her book, Communicate for Change, challenges us to look at our own bias and learn how to communicate well to bring justice in an unequal world. Please be aware that during this conversation, we will talk about Janelle's experience of stillbirth. Welcome to The Profile, Janelle, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I know you love telling stories, and I'm really looking forward to finding out about about your story and how you've become the person you are today. So let's start with your early life, Janelle. You were born in Birmingham. Tell me a little bit about your family and the circumstances you grew up in. So born in Birmingham, but no memory of living there until I was 13, because my dad was a pastor at that time in a Pentecostal black majority church. And so we moved to Kent before I was even one years old. Um, My first memories are, are of living in Oxford. And then we moved to Sheffield when I was six, seven. And we spent really our formative years in Sheffield until I was 13 when we moved back to Birmingham. But my family is my mum, my dad, um, my two sisters. I'm the middle child with all of the uh, wonderful foibles of being a middle child. Yeah, me too. It's excellent, isn't it? (laughs) Do you think, I I read somewhere that you're often the most sociable child when you're in the middle. Do you think that's true of you? I don't know. I think my youngest sister is definitely the most sociable, has, I would say, the widest circle of friends. Well, this probably ties in quite well with other things we'll talk about later in the interview, but about stereotyping and generalising. Not all middle children are the same. (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely not. So you you ended up going, I think, was it seven different schools in, in your childhood? Yeah. And how did you find all those transitions? Do you think it's had an impact on you? I think, you know, back then it was just so different. There was no social media. There was no, you know, keeping in touch. I found the other day some letters from some of my old classmates mm-hmm. when I moved from Sheffield to Birmingham. And, you know, we, we wrote letters at first. And we used to go back and see people. But it was very difficult to keep those connections. You know, you cry when you leave, but then you're into your new life. And when you're at school, you're very much immersed in the day-to-day of, the classes you're in, you know, the friends that you have, the, the social life you're trying to build. I think what I recognise now as an adult is I do find change not too difficult. Mm. So whereas some people are moving house is a massive thing, you know, moving job is a big thing, you know, what about the people I won't know anyone and, and all of that? And that's not really a factor in why I wouldn't do something. So I think it did build up a lot of resilience but my sister and I are actually in the same year at school. So we're a year apart in age. So I'm September 5th and she's August 31st, the, the cutoff day wow. of the following year. So there was always someone with us two anyway to kind of meet up with at break time mm. when you'd first started. Mm. And obviously now you work in communications, you've worked in the media, but I heard you did your first public speaking aged seven. Yeah, so, you know, churches back then, and I think this is a really um, thing that we don't often think about in church, but public speaking is something that children often do from a young age, being on the stage. And I think that actually, again, is is a life skill that you take into being an adult. But I was quite a good reader because my sister had taught me to read um, before I started school. And so we used to have our national conventions down in Brighton. and They were big affairs back then, you know, 5,000 people. Mm. Which church was it? Um, Church of God of Prophecy. Mm. And I would, at the National Convention, you know, read from the Bible on the stage, but also at church weekly, you know, I would sing, I would, you know, read, we were encouraged to like memorize scriptures and recite them and, and to give you a testimony, which was always very basic, you know, thank God for my mom and my dad, you know, it was, <laughs> it was kind of the very things that children know to be grateful for. Um, but, you know, I, I credit all of those things with a beginning of communication, understanding about how to use your voice. And obviously you grew up well within the church. Had your faith become your own then or was it more just part of your family culture? I think that's 
been an ebb and flow through life. Um, you know, I don't know if it's controversially, but I don't go to church anymore. I have a very, very, very strong faith. Mm. Um, but I think the power structures that I've seen um, and the way that I think church life can be is something that I've found to be um, not always helpful, actually, to a personal relationship. And I know that different people disagree and, and you know, uh, different things about community. But I think when it comes to faith community, that there's always faith community because it's been so much of my life and the people who I know. But I think, you know, when you're young, it's kind of a community faith. It's the water that you swim in. And then you go through different experiences through life, you know, like losing my daughter, different things where you begin to question your faith. And and so I think it's been an ebb and a flow and and just the ever evolving journey rather than uh it was this and then it was that I think it's it's been like so many relationships you know in your life where sometimes you feel really close and connected and sometimes you don't and that's kind of the way that I've always seen my relationship but it's always there Mm. around this time just before you moved to Birmingham again age 12 you had this encounter with rolling news with the the trial of OJ Simpson for murder. What what do you recall about that? And was it where your sort of interest in how stories are told came from? I think that was part of it, yeah, because at that time Sky or Cable as it was called, as mm-hmm. we used to call it then, was still was really new. I remember having the big sky dish on the side, which my dad had really only got to watch the cricket, so he could watch the West Indies. But we, you know, were introduced to kind of rolling news and you see this OJ Simpson chase kind of happening. And I think um part of it, we were on holiday in America around that time as well. And so, you know, you're watching it kind of this thing that's happening live and We'd never really had news like that in this country. But I think it just kind of captivated my interest into just a different world and just something that I'd never seen before. And you decided the post-16 education wasn't for you at the end of your school. And you did some really interesting jobs before you got into journalism. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, it was just I just didn't I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I think sometimes often as well, bright children suffer from too much choice and and, and GCSEs and A-level feeling so pressurising. And I just I just thought, yeah, this is not for me. Let me just earn some money. So first of all, I was a waitress in Pizza Hut. And then, you know, I kind of progressed on to office jobs, working in car insurance. Um, but the most interesting job I think I've ever had and still have ever had to this day is working at the airports where you worked at London Heathrow as check-in for Virgin Atlantic. And these are the days when we still had the tail end of carbon tickets. Do you remember those? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's how old I am. But yeah, it was um, the, the thing that I found so interesting about that job was that you just met different people every single day and you would talk to them for 10 to 15 minutes. And you would, you know, when you're going on holiday, people tend to be very... Um, free with information about themselves it's interesting because I think we're a similar age and I did my work experience at Manchester airport and yeah it's like a culture of its own yeah an airport incredible so in your late teens Janelle Aldred your life took quite a different turn do you want to talk to me a little bit about the birth of your daughter Sade Rose yeah so this was before I went to go and work at the airport and actually moving to London was part of my post, you know, losing my daughter and beginning to reimagine what life was going to look like. So I was working in a car insurance company, was seeing a boy, you know, I was 19. I wasn't thinking about getting pregnant at all, but obviously I was doing the things that happened to help someone get pregnant. So, you know, I, I, I fell pregnant and, and, you know, it's quite a big thing when you're raised in church, being pregnant and not being married and being a teenager. So there was all of that to contend with. And for me, um, the choice that I, you know, had made was to, you know, go through the pregnancy. And so I had a stillbirth at 40 weeks and 10 days, which, you know, right at the end, you know, you have the baby shower, you know, you've done everything and you're ready for this life change, which then doesn't happen. And I can look back now, you know, 20 years on and see the many ways that it made me think and behave 
I can't really say think and behave differently because there's no way of knowing what my life would have been like if I had a child, if that makes sense. Mm. But I can only see the way it's affected my decision making, my mental health, my choices, um, and everything that's come since then. But we have these moments often, don't we, all of us that kind of, you know, there's two paths and your life takes this turn. And and so it sent me down a certain journey and, and path. So forever changed, really. Are you happy to talk a little bit about the circum? Happy is the wrong word, but the, the circumstances surrounding Sade's birth and why, whether you felt angry about that, I guess is my question. I was really angry. I'd seen seven midwives in one week. I wasn't feeling very well. You know, I'd had a fine pregnancy and I was kind of, you know, trying to advocate for myself, my mother trying to advocate for me, and was given the brush off. Um, I think now I look back, I see that a lot of my oh, deep down, sometimes smouldering resentment around things is, is around injustice, is around people not listening mm. or people not being listened to when they can kind of maybe not know what the outcome will be, but have a sense that something's not okay. And I think that put kind of a steel rod down my back in a sense of kind of no no surrender when it comes to certain things and especially around myself or the way that I feel I'm being treated because I did speak up for myself but I wasn't listened to I think this comes down to another reason why and I you know write about this in the book why just the voice for the voiceless phrase is just ridiculous to me mm. no one's voiceless I wasn't voiceless I had a voice and I was trying to use it but people didn't want to listen and I think we need to recognise that injustice a lot of times is not that people don't have voices, it's that we don't have ears to hear. And that just brought that to me very, very strongly. So, mm. yeah, yeah. And we know that there's still racism and inequality in the way that black mothers are treated yeah. and a disproportionate number of babies from black families die in childbirth. Could you tell me a bit about your work with with Sands to to address it and, and t- tell me what Sands is to start with? Yeah, so Sands is a stillbirth and neonatal death society, and I'm really pleased and proud to be an ambassador for them. You know, I think this conversation is always so fraught mm. because people say, "Well, you, you're saying that midwives are racist." I'm not saying some of them will be racist; just you know, the data numbers. But actually, every single human being carries bias. And it's that bias that allows these deaths to happen needlessly. Because when we're looking at the the numbers and the data, when it comes to black mothers, stillbirths and mothers dying during birth, there's nothing physiologically different. In some cases, of course, there are. But generally speaking, there's, there's, not, there's nothing physiological going on. And there's no explanation for why it's happening. So we have to put down the explanation to human error. And that means that somewhere, somewhere, someone isn't listening. And I can see how, in my case, had I been listened to and things investigated further, they would have recognised that my placenta was running out. And working with SANS enables me to work with them on how we can help birthing partners especially to be advocates for mothers so that when things are not going correctly because when you're the one in labor and you're tired and you know you're knackered you've you know you've been growing a human for you know near enough 10 months you don't always have the energy to fight people and actually we're trained kind of implicitly to believe medical professionals so that if they say to you it's nothing we're kind of that's just the way it works that you we believe them and so this is but this is not about not believing medical professionals but it is also about an honesty and truth that people also know their own bodies um and that there is a a right so to speak type of family that people recognize and then there are other kinds of families that people don't recognize and where the bias can creep in is is through the difference and through maybe a family setup or makeup that you don't recognize or maybe don't agree with 
do I think anyone wants to kill someone's child? No, I don't. But do I think that sometimes bias can blind us to pain and taking things seriously? Absolutely. And so working with SAMs and, and, and with all they do, it's not about patients versus healthcare professionals, but it's about everyone recognising that we do all have bias. And unless we work together, we won't have better outcomes. But that does also include health professionals listening and recognising that they do carry bias within them. And so to not try and pretend that they don't, mm. but actually to embrace that as a way forward. And obviously, um, you were you were very late into the pregnancy post uh, when Shade should have been born. You then had to recover not only from her birth, which itself is a difficult process, and you had to to grieve at the same time as such a young woman. What did your grief look like? I think my grief looked like hiding, is probably what I would say, because when you're 18, 19, you think you know everything, don't you? You know, if only 18, 19 year olds could rule the world, everything would be solved because there's a sense of confidence um, that things can be different. There's a sense of, uh, you know, such, I, don't, I can't even think of the word, you know, just, just so, just confidence to mm. go after what you want, to do what you want, to problem solve, to make things right. And so this deep injustice that had happened, it, I don't think well, I know now I didn't know how to grieve. I had no idea because I had no idea of the magnitude of what was lost. And I think it was only oh, through the years that unfold that you get the sense of the magnitude of what was lost. And I think it's interesting because then it was very different world to what it's like now. You know, now people, we talk more openly about miscarriage and stillbirths. And I think it's good too, because I think by people understanding the signs that advocacy helps people to look out for things that I didn't even really think to look out for. Um, so I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't know how to process it. You know, I went to counselling, you know, you talk to people, you pre- like you do all the things, but I don't think it was until years later that I began to unprocess it. And even that has been a process of unraveling. I think there's so many mixed feelings when something is lost. I wasn't trying to get pregnant. So then there's all of that going on. It wasn't some, you know, it wasn't a deeply longed for pregnancy. So you go through all of those things in your mind and you try to unravel and unpack what that means. You know, I haven't gone on to have other children. So then you try to unravel and unpack did I want children or did I fall pregnant and now I have a longing for something that wasn't there before? So I think it's only been through the unfolding of time that you begin to come to terms with it. But I think that's something that presents itself to you in different ways at different stages. I haven't, you know, lost a parent, but I can only imagine that it unfolds in different ways as you go through different milestones of life. So when you get married or you get the job promotion, you graduate, you have your own children, you have, you know, all these stages, that loss presents itself to you in a new way. So I think grieving is just a process always of uncovering and and realigning yourself to the life that you have and to the future that you have and, and want to have for yourself. So I think it would be helpful here to share how people can get support in their grief, especially if they have a child who has died, what what would you recommend? So I, I do think SAMs are great and they have lots of resources and not just for parents, but also for wider communities, families and how communities can support, you know, parents who are grieving and they have befrienders, they have football clubs for dads um, who often can be left out of the conversation So, you know, I think they have so many ways that they support people. They have people on the end of the phone. The truth is, you know, friends and family love us and they want to say and do the right things. And, you know, sometimes I think people get a bad rap when they say the wrong things, but it's because most people don't know what to say. Having lost a child myself, sometimes I still don't know what to say when it happens to someone. But I think by accessing places like Sam's, and I know Tommy's deal, you know, more with miscarriages as well. 
you just access people who know what to say and who know how to support and how to help. And I found Sam to be genuinely just so willing to get to grips and to think about different aspects of life, like faith as well, which I do think makes a difference to how people deal with the loss. What was your faith journey through this time? Um, you know, some people say faith is a crutch, but you know what? Sometimes you do need something to lean on. Um, you know, I went through phases where I was, wasn't sure if I believed there was a God, but still probably deep down did. But I think my main, one of the things that I think, have thought, do think, is it's just hard to understand, you know, why some people can't have children and why some people can have loads of children. And then sometimes people who can have loads of children don't really care for them. When people who seems like they would really care for their children, you know, can't have them. And I, why, do, why do babies die? You know, all, all of these things are, are questions and questions that we ask of a loving God as we understand love. So I think in that sense, it's just a lot of questioning really. And it's really interesting because I remember talking to my dad and, you know, he's a pastor, theologian. And I just said, I just don't know if I believe in it. And he said, well, you're not wrong. He said, it's hard when we talk about this big God. And then somehow that's reduced to just coming to church on a Sunday morning and clapping our hands. How do those two things meet, you know, and, and where should they meet in our minds? And he just said to me, you know, it's about a faith that you can understand and reconcile and recognise in yourself. And actually, whilst I was in this time of, thinking, debating, wondering. Uh, the Pope came to the UK and he said, um, what did he say? He's basically talking about service and, and, and about serving others and about our faith being about that. And when he said it, I thought, yeah, actually, that's something that I can get behind because um, I, I can get that and I can and I can understand that because if it's just about me, this all doesn't make sense but if it's about us then that makes more sense to me so you you mentioned earlier you'd gone you'd left college you'd um started work at the airport and various other jobs you had Sade um what did you go on to do next how did you then move into this career in journalism so when I after I came to London because I'd got a place at London College of Fashion to do fashion business. This is after Sade, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I need to do something. And I wanted to move cities. So went to London College of Fashion. And then went to the airport first, because I'd moved to London, didn't have a job. So I went to work at the airport and then went to go to London College of Fashion and just, you know, worked in retail on the weekends. Did fashion, thought, mm, not really sure this is for me. Um, I got into the fashion business degree and I just thought, oh no, I just, I'm not sure fashion's the right space. Started a different degree in like tourism, quit that. And at this point, I think my parents were very much in despair. And then I came back to Birmingham and my dad kind of packed me off to his friend at the BBC to talk <laughs> because I just, I didn't, I didn't really have a direction or a northern star at that time and she said to me you thought about journalism you've got the perfect personality and I thought oh, no I've never thought about broadcast journalism so she told me there was a course it was in Stoke and so I kind of went off to that uni and met the tutor and did an interview and you do a screen test and a bit of radio and she was like I think you're going to be a star <laughs> she, um, she said you know I think you're going to make your money presenting and so I just started that course and then just on from there went for work experience at the BBC and yeah and then the rest is just kind of history and that was how I got into journalism did my master's degree in broadcast journalism and yeah it was just um, a providential journey so it was quite an easy route into journalism for me and I didn't really have to struggle too hard and grateful to my parents um, for when I went to London, you know, paying my rent and different things so I could work for free whilst I got my foot on the ladder. And I know it's not easy working in journalism. You've had some difficult experiences, but I want to hear some of the positive experiences as well. What were some of the highlights of your time working for national news outlets? I think so much. I think, one, it's a privilege to be able to share in the story of the nation. And, I, and, you know, I think that's always, always a great privilege. 
I've interviewed some amazing people. Mm. Sir Lenny Henry, mm. he was a great interviewee. Um, Baroness Joan Bakewell, mm. which might be Dame Joan Bakewell, but she's just absolutely fascinating person with a fascinating life. And we interviewed Paul O'Grady, One Direction. You know, I think you get to do lots of, being a journalist, you get to do and be in lots of fun places that you wouldn't otherwise. And I think that's what's really exciting about journalism. You get to go to like lots of black tie dinners and host lots of events. And the interesting thing, you know, you'll get a story and you don't know anything about the story. But by the time you've researched it, done a package on it, done a video, you know, you know all of, you know, you're a mini expert on like some random subject. And I think that feeds kind of my childish or when I was a child of all that reading and encyclopedias and newspapers and the reader's digest I've always had a curious mind so I think the thing I love about journalism is it indulges your curiosity because it's all about meeting people and understanding people and understanding a story and a narrative and then relaying that back to people. You're listening to The Profile. Hi, this is Sam from Premier Christianity. Would you like a free copy of the book that everyone is talking about right now? John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. I'm reading it myself and really enjoying it. You can get it when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. You'll get the UK's leading Christian magazine delivered through your letterbox each and every month. Plus this book. Take out the offer now at premierchristianity.com. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. What has been the impact of racism, Janelle Aldred, in your working life? I think, you know, it was really interesting once I was giving a talk and a student said, you know, what do you do if there's racism? And I said, racism is very hard to prove (laughs) unless someone is actually using, you know, racial words or different things. It's actually quite hard to say that it's because of your race. I think there's also the factor in in all industries as well of being a woman. Mm. And, you know, I think gender also plays, you know, a a big role in the way that people are treated at work as well. And so I think sometimes it's hard to know the crack between which it all falls, if that makes sense. But I definitely do know there have been times when I have sensed unfairness and unfair treatment and as I said to people I'm not sure if it's because I'm black or a woman or if Mm. it's both (laughs) but this is what I'm seeing and experiencing and it's not what that person over there is uh experiencing and so you know it's hard to to put that on someone but I definitely know that there have been times where I think that is what is behind it and when I talk about racism in that sense sometimes it's not about people not liking black people what it is sometimes is, and I write about this in the book, it's kind of like a superiority complex that black people just aren't as good as doing certain things, at doing certain things, or you just can't see them doing this or see them leading or see them. And to me, this is the same attitudes that I see in churches, I see in communities, you know, see in the workplace, in offices, you know, I've worked in offices. It's this underlying current of superiority that holds other people back or people not like you and I think that is far more dangerous in a sense if someone's overtly racist you know what Mm. you're dealing with when it's insidious and and just bubbling underneath the surface masquerading as anything but racism then it's a big problem and I think sometimes that comes out and people complaining about positive discrimination or you know implying that you got the job because of diversity you know, and, and yeah. I've had that said to me before, you know, from someone who is much junior to me, not as experienced, but equally, you know, over time and over years and just maybe the way that I was raised, you know, our parents raised us quite confident and quite ambitious. And so for me, that has always felt like that is not a burden I'm going to be carrying for someone. Mm. That doesn't make me feel less, but it helps me to understand what you're all about. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's kind of the way that I approach it. It doesn't make me feel like I don't belong. I don't walk into rooms and don't feel like I belong. I walk into rooms and think I should be there because I know I've got the talent, I've got the skill backed up by the piece of paper and now the years of experience. So, but that helps me to know 
how you see other people and how you're potentially seeing me. Because when you look at me, you see a black woman and can't believe that I could be there by my merit. And you said in your book that you mentioned to communicate for change, that after working in the news for many years, you just felt that you weren't contributing in a sort of positive way, a way that informed people anymore. And you, you said this quote, which I, uh, I really found interesting. Every day, in effect, I would say, these are the worst things that have happened today with pictures in case you didn't get it. And it yeah. stopped bringing you joy, I guess. Yeah. And more than that, it's a deep sense of just what are we doing here? What, what are we really informing people about? You know, I always find it really interesting. We spend a lot of time in the news talking about America, but not a lot of time talking about Europe, mm. the countries that we're closest to. And actually what's going on there actually has a big impact, more impact on us than what's happening with Donald Trump, for instance. But he will be reported on excessively. Um, Germany, hardly hear it unless it's an election. And also just the general fear that I think people feel and some of them fears over fearful of things that are less likely to happen because it's what we talk about a lot. So we talk a lot about terrorism, but we don't talk a lot about car accidents. You're more likely to die in a car accident than you are by terrorists. Mm. All of these things just caused me to question how informative is the news? How informed are we about the safety of our local area? versus the safety of central London. You use an interesting example as well about a trip to Malawi. Would you mind sharing yeah. about that? Yeah, so go on a trip to talk about, you know, the lack of rain. Of course, it rained nonstop. Um, in, in all of these things, and, you know, something I'm part of a collective ethical storytelling, in all of these things, I guess I'm questioning what is the ethics of our storytelling? Mm. Are we, do we have a narrative already? that we now want to back up with the facts or with the facts that we choose rather than going somewhere, seeing the story and reporting on what we see. And I think, especially when it comes to international development, this is an issue. This is an issue that goes to the heart of how we raise money and what's our motivation. So really in the news now, what is the motivation? Is the motivation engagement, eyes on it? Or is the motivation to genuinely inform people about the world that we live in, to genuinely show people what happens in some areas of poverty around the world? But my question is, we don't show the pictures of the poverty on the end of our streets sometimes. We're less invested. And what is that about? So what did you come away with on this trip to Malawi? Did you come away with a story about the rain? Or did you come no, away no, we didn't. <laughs> We didn't. Um, no. And I think because we don't believe that people can take in complexity, that's why. And I think that people are increasingly sophisticated in what we can understand and also increasingly wanting to hear the full story and to see the full picture. And I think it's correct and right that we do that. I think sometimes we infantilize people by saying well if we tell them this then they won't do that or they won't give us money because well actually it's raining rain today doesn't stop the systemic problem of, of poverty in a place and lack of food it's rain for you know a couple of weeks but in our mind somehow we can't get past that but I think we should try so what was it that made you eventually step away from journalism and into communications I think it was a variety of things and it's interesting because I'm still involved in journalism. You know, I'm on the Women in Journalism Committee. Um, I'm surprised they all still talk to me after my book, to be fair. But, um, you know, I, I'm still very much involved and and, and interested because I, I think we can be better. You know, I do the newspaper reviewing at Sky and at BBC Radio London. I think in the end, what made me walk away was several things. One was about the informing and the scaring people and, and just news not being very neutral. I think the other thing was around... I wanted to be able to be in a position to bring more change and actually reading the news. I didn't feel that I really, you have a kind of influence, you know, in that you're on screen, you're a visible person, but you don't have influence over the news agenda and influence over, you know, narrative telling. And, you know, also journalists is not that well paid. I think it's probably <laughs> the other one as well. Um, 
it was just like a multiple of things. And, you know, journalism really was my northern star after my daughter died. And it really gave me something to push on towards. And it gave me a career when I needed something to fill that space, that gap. And also, I think I got to the point, well, I know I got to the point where I didn't need that anymore. And so it was kind of all of those things converged, really, to make the conditions right for me to go and do something else. You know, I came off screen three times um, as a journalist, you know, from presenting, because actually there's bits of it that I love and there's bits of it that I don't enjoy. I think it's, you know, a lot of vanity. Then part of me is vain. So, you know, I think it was just everything kind of came together and the time just felt right for me to to step in. And the other thing, probably, finally, is when you read the news, you have to be unbiased. So you're not allowed to say who you vote for. You're not allowed to show a political bias or much bias on some of the topics that are very close to my heart and that I care about. And actually, I wanted to be able to give a voice to those opinions. So now you're a communications specialist. Can you flesh that out a bit? What does that mean? Oh, gosh, yeah, what does that mean? I don't know. Um, you know, since journalism, I was head of digital strategy for an NGO. I've run a TV channel. Um, now I'm a director of comms for a management consultancy. I've got my own comms consultancy. What people pay me for is they pay me to help them achieve their business or, or brand goals through communication. So that could look like social media. It could look like media. It could look like helping them to refine their story or to understand their story and to give them a narrative. The book takes, I guess, a slightly different uh, turn to your, your general work because you've used it to help people to think about inju- speaking out against injustice, communicating in a way that counters injustice. What was it that, that brought that about? So that came around because it was after Meghan and Harry got married and seeing all these headlines and people saying it's racist and people saying it's definitely not racist and you know, I'm thinking the truth is somewhere in the middle and is both. (laughs) And actually it just made me think that a lot of the conversations we have are quite binary and it kind of, you know, it's like talking about the midwives. You're saying they're racist. No, I'm not saying they're racist. Okay, well then they're not racist. Well, no, I'm not saying they're not racist. What I'm saying is is that in the middle, (laughs) there's a lot of humanity and bias of the way that people understand the world, the kinds of people they don't know who are not like them, the kind of stories that they've never been exposed to, the kind of communications they've never really had. And in that space, that's where bias is. That's where it creeps in. That's where it creates a problem. But then we get into an argument that's based in these very binary things, which is not quite true either. That means we just get stuck in circular arguments and we never really get to a solution. You know, in the book, I talk about, you know, the unedifying choice of, People say, oh, you know, well, white working class boys are being held back because of the focus on black boys. And we just get stuck in this argument. Why do we have to choose between who needs help? Actually, here we have two groups of people who have very specific and different needs. And why aren't we just meeting those specific and different needs in specific and different ways? And I think because we're talking about social justice all the time, sometimes we don't think about whether or not we're actually communicating effectively about it. And for me, it's we get into an argument about who's right. And actually, I think it needs to be an argument about what's the solution. And I think those are two very different conversations. And I think we need to have the latter. And you do use quite a few examples from the Bible in your in your book as well. How's your faith influenced how you see this uh, communication around injustice? You know, I think Jesus was one of the, you know, greatest communicators in terms of how he used story how he used comms narrative probably is saying what to speak to help people to understand what it was he was trying to say and he knew that if he you know were just to be very literal with some of it people would then just keep arguing because they'd come to him and say well aha what about this and what about this and try to push him into a yes or no this is wrong And he would often not do that. He would just choose the third way of saying, ah, well, you know, who, you know, who is your brother? You know, he would do it in a way that would make them engage with the issue from a different point of view. And then he communicated things in other ways, like with the woman by the well, just by sitting with her, communicated a new way of doing things that was different to what had been. And so I think in that sense, 
as well as the whitewashing of Jesus, has kind of been like the almost uh, softening of him and how he was. He was actually a very direct, radical person who I don't think would fit into most churches these days because of how different he was and just how he was willing to go to the ends. You know, when you think about someone who was willing to flip over a table in a temple and really, you know, have this righteous anger about something, whereas now it'd be like problematic, too disruptive, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think that's how my faith has informed it's okay to disrupt and it's okay to be disruptive for a just cause. And I think, unfortunately, churches seem to be very comfortable with that a lot of the time, unless it's a group think disruption. Um, so I think my faith has informed me as well because, you know, Jesus showed it was okay to go alone in his thinking um, and to push and challenge people like I said, about a different perspective and a different way to see it and to be the first to go and sit with someone else and to use communication really effectively. And he drew massive crowds. You know, it was before Facebook, so there was no Facebook events. But, you know, he drew huge crowds who came to hear him because he was tickling their minds, their psyche of there's a different way to be and there's something different coming and here's a vision for the future. And bigged himself up a lot as well which you know people don't really love these days either. you know I'm the son of God you know he wasn't afraid to do all of those things because he stood in who he was he knew what was right and he always did what was what was right even if it didn't always look the way we expect right to look and actually how willing are we to seek justice and to befriend the people who might be saying the uncomfortable but true things rather than going with the crowd and actually you know as I used the example in the beginning you know with a woman caught in adultery to say okay well why don't you all look inside and if you find nothing inside of you then go ahead but if not you know and to reflect on that I think he reminded us to be of no reputation and in a world where reputation and personal branding is everything that's a very scary concept but that's how it informs me I'm not here in this life to seek favor from people I'm here to do what's right and that's really important to me mm. you said you were, you mentioned group think then it was a sort of a strong teaching of your your parents I think rejecting group think yes you know my dad even though he was the pastor always used to say don't leave your brain at the door of a church um you know bring it in with you and I think that is so important it's something that I take you know not just in faith settings but everywhere and you know you don't want to be contrary for contrary's sake which is always the temptation but actually to look at something and say do I agree and if I don't agree why not you know the other day I left something because I didn't agree with the approach and everybody else did agree and it was going to go ahead but I just said you know what my conscience my peace I just you know I can't I can't you know I can't do this I can't sign this thing and that is very important to me I don't want to get swept away in a crowd sometimes crowds are right but sometimes they're wrong but actually you have to have the values your own values and your own principles deep down inside of you so that when you see injustice you're able to call it out but if we're too worried about our positions and wanting an opportunity or wanting to be in with the right crowd or do the right thing or not be seen as difficult I think we actually do have the blueprint in the bible to say no there's there's that's not the way and you I guess tied up with that you, you talk a lot about self-awareness and self-reflection and, and examining our own bias have you found bias in yourself? Oh my gosh, everywhere. You know, it was really funny. I went to talk, do the uh, talk about the book at a school and, you know, those students asked me some of the best questions I've been asked. And but one of them said, you know, you write this book without being judgmental. How did you do that? And I said, it's because I know how deeply flawed I am and I know how much grace I need. And so I tried to write it in that perspective of not, me telling everyone how awful we are but 
really it's a chance for us all to look inside you know since I've since the book's been published I have to think about my Twitter a lot more kind of am I holding myself up to my own ideals in terms of you know trying to be fair and even-handed and to think about the human being you know on the other side of things so I have bias in me I have you know discrimination in me I have injustice in me and it would be a, a lie to say that I don't you know I can care very much and deeply about certain things and not really think very much at all about other things and I also recognize that not we can't all care deeply about everything we just don't have the emotional capacity but equally just to keep an eye on that I don't think I'm always on the side of the angels but that I understand that sometimes you know I'm not and I heard someone preach once and although I thought most of his theology wasn't that great but I did think this line was very good and he said um we always like to think we're David but sometimes we're Saul and I think sometimes we have to remember that we always want to be the little guy up against it, you know, us against the world. But sometimes we're the world. And I try to remember that about myself. I found your section in the book about Edward Colston really interesting. You know, there's this uh, temptation in all these, um, especially when we're talking about issues of injustice, to be very binary. But you say we need to be able to ask the difficult questions and, and nuance. I think that was one of the strongest themes of the book for me, the word nuance, which is a word is one of my favorite words. <laughs> but you, you talk about, you know, was he a slave trader or a philanthropist? Well actually, could we say he was both? He was both. And but then and then and then we when we say that then we come to, okay, so should we be celebrating him? But mm. to you can't have the discussion with someone on the other side if we won't both accept on both sides that he was both. And now, with both things on the table, can we admit, which where I land truly, that the slavery part means we probably shouldn't put a statue of him up. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I can't acknowledge within the debate to have a, an, an open, com- an honest conversation that he was both. I think it was Hillary Clinton that said some people who meet me will say I'm the best person they've ever met. And some people say I'm the worst and they're both right. And I think um, that's true. Every single person in this world, there are some people who think that you are an amazing human being. And there are some people who do not like you at all and who've had bad experiences with you. But because of the need that we feel to hide that gap in us of who we are and who we want people to think we are, we don't want to also acknowledge that gap in others. I'm also interested, you talk about the way language is used as well and how language has changed. So we've gone from, I mean, I've, I'd forgotten this phrase, but you brought it back in the book. Um, you'd gone from talking, we went from talking about melting pots to using multicultural to now we talk about diversity and now move, we've even moved on to inclusion. Do you think language matters? Yeah, no, language matters. It, language does matter. But I think it's about understanding that language is an evolving and has always evolved. So I think it's really interesting, you know, if you watch like, um, and I love period dramas, and the way they spoke then, we don't speak like that now. We don't use those words or the interpretation has changed. Um, and the same thing happens when we talk about social justice. You know, people say, oh, I don't know what to say. You know, it's always wrong. No, it's always changing. And that's kind of okay because it changes our society and our cultural intelligence and our social intelligence evolves and we get better and we get better at understanding. You evolve. So why wouldn't society and why wouldn't language? The very reason that I've never had a tattoo, Janelle. (laughs) 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 But there's one word that you used, allyship, which it's used quite a lot at the moment. You have a, you, you're not completely convinced by the way that it's, this idea is, is being used. Yeah, I think allyship has become kind of a phrase like, I'm an Arsenal supporter, yeah? Do you go to the matches? Not anymore, you know? It's just kind of... I think it's, it's a phrase that people use to describe what I would say is being a decent human being. So when you see injustice, you call it out and you try to do the right thing by other people, like when you give things a title and a name, it kind of makes it into something else. And I do think that it has morphed into a more performative 
way of standing with others than not. You know, when we think about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of those things and this big cry for racial justice and, you know, even in church, this big cry for racial justice, how many of those churches now have black leaders? You know, Mm. that's allyship reflecting your congregation back to itself. You know, you're telling me that you live in London, that you live in Birmingham and you cannot find any people of colour to lead in your congregation. That's crazy to Mm. me. But yet we want to talk about being allies. Well, actually what you are, what you want to do is you want to confer assistance on people where and when you think they need it and how you want to do it in a way that feels comfortable to you, that requires you to cede no power, no ground, and to not change anything about the way that you do things. Not allyship at all by any stretch of the imagination. People find it much easier to like a good tweet about how we should be fairer than to actually be fairer in their own lives and in their own spaces. If allyship is just an ongoing project, i.e. you don't have any friends in your life who are like the people you want to ally yourself to, then it's just a forever helping hand rather than anything that's based in equality and respect and understanding. I think, I can't remember, forgive me, it might have been you that said this, you're an ally if somebody else tells you an ally. Yeah, it's true because people are self-appointed, you know, um, allies of people. So you talk in your book about priorities. We don't all have the same priorities. You can't expect everyone to have the same priorities or to be passionate about our priorities. What are your priorities in life now? Oh, that's a good question. I think my priorities currently are around women and black people, I would say, um, and around the progression of us in different spaces. It's what I do in my, a lot in my day job. Uh, It's around gender, diversity in corporate and public life at senior leadership levels really in the same way my work at Sands is kind of you know still linked to that kind of progression in terms of how people are seen and treated in you know spaces where they don't aren't the powerful dynamic but I think my number one priority is actually I would love to help the world communicate better around difference so that we can actually have more people thinking towards solution. And if you could say one thing to the church about how we communicate a message of justice and hope, I guess, with the rest of the world, what would that be? Start in your own church. I think that would be what it is. Um, if you're in a multicultural place, if you're in a place you know, where there's poverty, if you're on an estate, um, I would ask, where are those people in your leadership? How are we not just putting programs on for people if they just need forever help? But actually, how are we using their wisdom, life experience, knowledge and skills to also lead the church? That would be what I would say. Thank you so much, Janelle Aldred, for sharing your story with me today. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much, Abigail. I'm Abigail Thomas, and you've been listening to my interview with Janelle Aldred here on Premier Christian Radio. And for more conversations like this one, download the profile as a podcast, premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.